As we look at the book of James this morning, uh, you, you'll start to see some of the, the parallels, uh, or, or not the parallels, the repeating themes that we have seen again and again over the past uh, couple weeks. Of course, we have in the book of uh, Titus this idea of hoping in Christ, looking to his glorious appearing. Of, we saw that this was again echoed in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 last week, as we talked about uh, having this perspective of Christ, who is our life, appearing. And now as we come to James, uh, we also see that there is this command to establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There's this hope that we are to look to, this way that we see the future, and it uh, really dictates the way that our behavior ought to operate in the present. So we have these themes that are kind of drawing uh, this text and the, the previous text together. But the thing that, uh, the, the reason why James goes at uh, this recommendation as he goes with this command this way is because James's uh, book is really a very practical, hands-on, nuts-and-bolts sort of book often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. Uh, James loves to, to jump around and just give you a little bit of this and a little bit of that and make sure that uh, there's some ways that you can practically apply the scriptures to your life. And, and as we come into uh, the second half of the book of James, of course, in James chapter 3, we have the, the famous section about the, the tongue being, uh, you know, compared to this uh, wildfire or the rudder of a ship, this thing that is so small but yet can cause so much damage. And uh, as he moves into uh, his response, that he st starts to emphasize that we ought to have wisdom from above and look to the ways that God would want to speak into our lives so we don't say stupid stuff. Uh, and then as he moves through uh, the remaining chapters, in chapters 4 and 5, he really starts to get to this warning uh, for the church, for those who are, are hearing this, about having character uh, that reflects God's character and really calling out that we ought to avoid living worldly lives, that we ought to uh, avoid being people who don't speak evil against one another. Um, uh, we don't judge each other in the way that the world judges. And he begins to, to emphasize these things because he's drawing a contrast between what it means to, to be a Christian who lives with Christ as Lord of your lives or whether the world who says that they are the, the captain of their own souls, that they are the masters of their lives. And, and James throughout it continually emphasizes that we ought not to act in such a way that we are in charge, but rather we're acknowledging that God is in charge, that he is the one who is ruling and reigning over all things. And uh, so much so that as we come into uh, the latter section of chapter 4, he begins to speak very practically about uh, planning your life and strategizing. And, and of course, uh, this is the section where he speaks about uh, that we ought not to to say, oh, tomorrow I'm going to, to do this and to have this sort of attitude like we're in charge, but rather to say if the Lord wills, then we will participate in this. It's, it's not so much a, a command to say this verbally, but to have this motive, this attitude of the heart to be wholehearted in your commitment to Jesus so that when you are wholeheartedly committed, you are confessing with every moment of every day that you are going to follow what the Lord leads you into. 
And as he, as he addresses this plans for the future, then he narrows down the field in chapter 5 and gives a word specifically to those who are rich. He wants those who are uh, wealthy to have instruction, to know how they ought to operate. And what he's wanting to really highlight there is that riches, wealth, is not a way that we ought to uh, exercise our independence from the Lord, but rather when we do that, we put ourselves in a position where we've created an idol and placed ourselves under judgment. What he says there is that you, you, you've created a new God. You've created an opportunity to be judged rather than an opportunity to recognize uh, Christ as Lord. And so, as he's writing to this church, as he's writing to this group of people, he wants them to understand this, that those who are rich, even though it looks like they've got their lives together, even though it looks like they can just use their wealth and finances to pay off any problems that they have in their life, or they can uh, use those tools that are at their uh, disposal, they can use those to, to um, get ahead in life and to move through uh, life more easily. He says there's a day coming, a day of judgment for those who place their trust in riches. Now, by contrast, for those who aren't wealthy, when you see people who have uh, wealth, you start to kind of get a little bit of jealous and be like, well, you know, uh, it's easy for them. It's easy for them to deal with that. It's easy for them because, like, they have the ability to, to get themselves out of trouble, to pay off, you know, if they get a really unexpected bill, like, they have the money to dip in there and do that, or they have the the ability, if they're tired and, and need a rest, they can just take vacation whenever they want and go. And, you know, and, and there's this jealousy uh, or really envy that can often creep up in those who are, who are not wealthy. Now, as we go through the book of James, we see that the Bible doesn't say don't be wealthy. It just says use your wealth wisely, acknowledging the lordship of Christ. And neither does it say the ideal is to be someone who is uh, in poverty, but rather all things should come under the lordship of Christ. And so as, as we come to our text this morning, what, what James is wanting to emphasize is that as you move through life as a Christian, you are going to experience hardship and difficulty, something that we've saw through, all throughout the book of First Peter, something that uh, both Titus and Colossians acknowledge that we are going to live in the present in times where we don't understand how things are working, where we don't understand how we can get through hardships and difficulties and worries and anxieties and fears. But what James says and what Paul says, both in Titus and in Colossians, is that our view, our future view of the return of Christ, the exalted Christ, should shape our behavior in the present. And here, James's emphasis is to live in a way that we are demonstrating patience. We read in verse 7 of James chapter 5, he says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Just after addressing this idea of uh, the rich and them having all this wealth and, uh, you know, they're able to lay up for themselves treasure in such a way that they can pull themselves out of trouble. They'll, they will, their riches will be subject uh, to this destruction and decay, and they will also likely be judged. He says, look, you're on level playing field with them. You ought to be patient. If you are experiencing hardship, if you're experiencing difficulties, you ought to be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming 
of the Lord. Of course, he is referring to the arrival of the king, the one in whom all riches are. It's not that the king has the riches, the king is the riches. Like, this is how radical his statement is. It's not saying, like, when the king shows up, he's going to give you, like, wealth. When the king shows up, like, that is the wealth. You will have all that you need. Your deepest desires will be met, will be satisfied in Jesus. He refers here to this time, of course, where Jesus will return. Jesus himself spoke of uh, his return, the coming of the Lord. And at the coming of the Lord, we see that two things happen. The judgment of the wicked in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, Jesus says this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then in verse 39, he says, And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This idea that as Jesus comes, he will judge those who are unrighteous, who have failed to put their trust in him, who have wanted to be their own gods. And then he will also come to deliver the Christians, the saints. In 1 Thessalonians 4.15, Paul writes, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so there's this idea that Jesus, when he comes, he will deliver us, that we will be glorified with him. We will know him and enjoy him forever. And so as we wait for that day, James says, be patient. Have this attitude of long-suffering. Long-suffering. I think that's a good description for patience. It's the old-school definition, long-suffering, because sometimes that's how it feels. Where it's just like, man, I've been suffering for a long time. What, he, what James doesn't say is, like, this is like long, try to get out of suffering. He just says, like, you just chill in it. Long-suffering. You just, you're there enduring, being patient, suffering well. Now, when he says this, he's speaking both uh, externally and internally. He's speaking both to those who are outside of the church, right? As he's just come off of this context of speaking with the rich, the rich who have money, those who are wealthy and uh, who are trusting in their own riches, when you're looking at them, don't be envious of them. Don't be looking at them and being like, man, like, that's so frustrating. Don't be investing your mind, your heart in... uh, animosity and resentment towards those who are uh, in these positions of wealth and power. But also, internally, in a family, there's just lots of fights. Because sometimes people are like, you know, you're trying to get ready in the morning and people are in the bathroom for too long. You're like, I need to get in there. I need to get ready for the day too. Right? There's just dumb stuff that happens in families that we have to work through. And within the family, we are to be known as those who love one another. This is how Jesus said that we would be known by the world. They would know us by our love for one another. How we love one another reflects his character. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says that we should live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, there it is, bearing with one another in love. 
he connects patience with bearing with one another in love. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he likewise gives instruction to the church. And he says this, which is like, this is a great word. Practically, from like a leadership perspective, we urge you, brothers, right? So he's talking to the Christians there, uh, and he's writing this letter to the leaders of the church, and it will be read in the, the hearing of, the, of all the people. Encourage, or excuse me, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. So like, if you're just like somebody who's in the church, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, like, tell them like, hey, like, it's time to get to work. Encourage the faint-hearted, those, those who are discouraged and on, you know, feeling down, come alongside them and encourage them, like, all right, guys, like, your identity's in Christ. Let's get going together. Help the weak, right? So then there are those who just don't have, like, what they need or they're missing the resources. Help the weak come alongside them. And then he wraps it up with this. Be patient with all. Because the temptation is, when you see in the church, you see those who are idle, and you're just like, look, I know you're lazy, you know you're lazy, everybody knows you're lazy, everybody knows you're not doing your job, like, we're all, it's all clear, we get it, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're not participating, you're not showing up on time, you're not reading your Bible, you're not praying, you're not contributing as a member of the church. It's easy to look around and to, to kind of have that in our minds, it's easy to look around and have that, but we have to consider like, oh, maybe this person's discouraged, maybe they're faint-hearted, maybe they are weak. But what James, or excuse me, what, what Paul says there is that within the church, we ought to recognize those things, not ignore them, recognize them, but then be patient with all. Be patient with them. Come alongside and, and don't let it sit. Don't let it be, be something that seeps into create further problems in the church, but just be patient as you work through it. Suffer long. So externally and internally, we have this attitude of patience. Of course, this speaks to the idea of endurance. Endurance. Bearing all things. This is how Paul describes love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things. Not some things, not like most of the things, not the majority of the things, except for like the really couple super annoying things, and those are the things I'm going to decide to get angry about things. All things is what he describes this as. And so we ought to have endurance. We ought to be patient, to have this determination within our minds and hearts to face these hardships, difficult circumstances. We are patient with people, and we endure difficult circumstances and situations. Now, James transitions here to give a helpful agrarian example for his readers. We don't live in agrarian times, so we'll break it down for you. But he gets to his example in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. He looks at the idea of a farmer preparing a field who sees that they want to accomplish something, that they want fruit. 
And so they go through the trouble of preparing the field, going out with the plow, and breaking up the soil, making sure that it's rich with nutrients, that they've properly uh, fertilized the field, that they've taken the time to collect the seeds and space them appropriately so that way there can be growth. And then the watering over time, coming back, protecting the seed, uh, the plant from uh, you know, pests and birds and those who would try to come and uh, reap the, the work of the farmer too early, and waiting for this crop to grow. It's, a, it's an example of natural patience. And he, he puts this together in a way that would be powerful for his readers. The, he, he speaks to this, of course, with two phases of rain. The early and the late rains. The early rains, uh, would, would, there was two, two kind of seasons of rains. There was a rain that came in kind of the just after harvest, late, late fall. And then there would be a rain that would come in early spring. And for James, as he speaks this out, it's, it's a practical example that would be understandable to his hearers. But more than that, it echoes into God's demonstrated faithfulness to his people. As we read throughout the Old Testament, uh, this is how God marks his faithfulness again and again for his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, uh, verse 14, in response to his people's obedience, he promises us, he said, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. Later in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 24, he says, They do not say in their hearts, Let us fear the Lord our God, who gives us the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Again in Joel chapter 2, verse 23, uh, just before he gets into this idea about God pouring out his spirit on, uh, on mankind, he says this, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. And so when James says this, what he's doing is he's saying, you be patient, and then you wait for these seasons of rain. And what he's saying there is that you should wait, you should be patient, and wait for God to act. Wait for God to bring the rain. Because the farmer doesn't bring the rain. The farmer does his job, he plants the seed, and then he just waits. Be patient and wait. Be like the farmer. The farmer doesn't participate in the growth, but he watches over the developing crop with care, with, uh, with understanding. But nothing can hurry the early rain, the late rain. It's just, the farmer just is at the mercy 
of the, the cycle that God has put in place. Nothing can speed it up. And so when he says here, be patient, until the coming of the Lord, what he's saying here is like, this is just like the early and late rains. God will be faithful to his promises. He will do what he said he will do. But your job is just to keep on walking with him, knowing him, enjoying him. He's going to handle the rest of it. No amount of worry or preparation or fear or anxiety or any work that you could do could contribute to his return. You, you, you can't trigger it. You can't do something that's going to make him return out of his timing. It's his timing. It's not your timing. It's his timing. And so... He re-emphasizes in verse 8, you also be patient. <laughs> be patient. Here's an example of ways that God has been faithful to his people in the past. Again, be patient. And then he says this, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We need to be people who are watching our hearts. We need to be aware of what is going on within. And of course, as we've said many times, as the scriptures speak about the heart, establishing your heart, what it's speaking of is the totality of man, the whole of the person. This idea that to have a changed heart, a transformed heart, is to have a completely changed life, a reoriented life. And this is what, what James is getting at here. Our greatest need, our greatest, uh, our greatest circumstance that we are in is that we need to have a heart change. We need to go from those, uh, who, from people who are broken in heart, that are are having a corrupt heart to a new heart that is given to us by Christ. And so he says here, we are to establish our hearts. Again, endurance, patience. This speaks to this determination that we are to have. Right? Jesus had this same sort of determination to obey the Father uh, as, we, as we read in the book of Luke, as he was nearing the, the appointed time, we read in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This means that, of course, Jesus was determined, he was focused, he was one in purpose to go to Jerusalem so that he might suffer and die for our sakes. And likewise, James says, we also ought to be determined. We ought to be established. Now, how, how are we established? Well, the establishment of our hearts is completely accomplished by God himself. If you read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says, he may establish your hearts. It's Jesus who does this work. As we 
find our identity in him. We trust in him. We look to him. He will establish your hearts, blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, or excuse me, verse 6, not 16. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So it's this idea, as you've received Christ, as you've trusted in him for salvation, as you've found your identity in him, keep going. If you keep going, you will be established. If you keep investing in finding your identity in Christ, then you will be established in Christ. But if you find your identity in Christ and then you decide you're going to try to create a new identity again, then of course you're not going to be established. He is getting at this idea of suffering well because you are established, because your identity is so rooted in Jesus that when the storms of life come, that you are not shaken. And so James says we ought to come under the lordship of Christ. We ought to establish our hearts to be patient. But he says that this patience is based on specific timing a timing factor it's the coming of the lord the reason we are this we live this way is because jesus is coming and so we want to be found in him when he returns now in verse 9 he comes back and gives us practical examples and how we ought to operate within the church with one another do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, it's the nearness of Christ's return that is this call for behavior that reflects God's character. When under the pressure of hardship and difficult circumstances, when we're under situations of suffering, when you are being patient, sometimes you kind of get to the end of your rope and you're like done being patient, and then you want to grumble. You want to get upset. And it's easy to look to the person next to you and be like, let me complain a whole bunch. Come here so I can, I can rattle off all the things I'm frustrated about. It's easy to grumble. It would be natural if you were in that situation and eventually you kind of are running out of patience. But this frustration that James is speaking to, he's calling us to avoid grumbling, to not complain again, to, to not complain about our circumstances, our situations, not complain against those who are in the community who are obnoxious or annoying or aren't maybe doing their jobs. And what, what he says here is that we should not do this so that we are not judged of course uh, it seems as if what james is doing here is he's really echoing the teachings of jesus having this mindset that jesus is going to return that jesus's return is near he of course says behold the judge is standing at the door but it seems like he has jesus's very words in mind in matthew chapter 24 jesus speaks the idea of the fig tree, the lesson of the fig tree. He says in verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lesson. 
as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. What Jesus says there is there's signs of his return. And James says, we can see some of these signs. We can see that the king, his return is near. And so we ought to be focused on the return of the king and also having good fruit so that way we are representing him well when he returns. That our character is reflecting his reign. We, that's what you want. When the king returns, you want him to find his house in order, for him to look around and be like, oh yeah, like this is, you guys got here before me and you set it up and made sure that everything was exactly how it should be. This, this kingdom is reflecting my character. This space is reflecting my intentions. Now, James emphasizes this because he wants us to understand what it means to suffer well, to be able to endure suffering, to be patient, but to look to the future with this anticipation, this hope that Paul spoke of similarly in uh, both Colossians and Titus. And he moves into uh, verse 10, really 10 and 11 here, uh, to kind of break this down a little bit further, how we ought to live. He brings out three points for us to consider. First, we have to expect a type of suffering which requires patience. Then he calls us, as hearers, as those who are experiencing suffering, as those who are anticipating this, that we are under the blessings of God, that we are not separated from Him. And then He gives us this practical example of our boy Job. Everybody loves Job, right? Because Job's just kind of like a mess. Uh, but also, you just see God's hand sustaining him. In verse 10, we read this. As an example of suffering and patience, he's like, if you guys didn't know what it looks like, here it is. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Here's what it looks like to suffer well and to be patient, to endure well. Take the prophets. So we got, you know, Jeremiah... Uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, these guys, they had a, a pretty hard life. Jeremiah, he suffered at the hands of uh, these pagan kings and his own people, but he was faithful to deliver the message that God had given to him. He was faithful to communicate all that God had asked him to do. He was hunted by the men of his hometown specifically because they wanted him to stop uh, him from speaking in the name of the Lord. Uh, we read in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 21, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of uh, Anathoth, 
who seek your life and say, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hand. Like that gets intense. It's like, this is my hometown. Like you guys are supposed to be like with me. And they're like, look, like you better stop or we're going to kill you. Like that's the type of suffering that Jeremiah was dealing with. Of course, uh, Ezekiel, he dealt with intense uh, suffering in, in, uh, throughout his life as he delivered his message again and again and again. In Ezekiel 24, 15, we read this. The word of the Lord came to me, right? So here's here's uh, Ezekiel hearing what's, what's going to happen. Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. I mean, like, that's hard to be told, like, here's, here's what's about to happen, but you got to suffer well. We read in Isaiah, of, uh, of course, uh, about his suffering, his hardship that, we, that he dealt with. Uh, in Hebrews 11, verse 37, seems like it lines up with church history that speaks about uh, Isaiah being sawn in two. This was the, the description of, of what happened to many of the prophets. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. These were like the people that God used, that he wanted to use most faithfully and were most obedient to him. And they experienced hardship, they experienced suffering. And so for those who are called by God in this manner, they experience these things. This is a part of the life of following God. Doing God's will often leads to suffering. It often leads to hardship. And we need to learn how to suffer well, to suffer patiently, to deal with the difficulties of life, our anxieties, our worries, and our fears, just as we've studied all throughout the book of First Peter. Keeping that mindset, looking to that future day. In verse 11, James continues, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. It's like if you, if you remain steadfast in that, then you are called blessed, that you are called uh, it, as someone who is in a position of receiving this um, relationship to God, how, as it's described. This is, it seems like, again, here, James is getting at the words of Jesus. If you look back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we have this whole list of the, the Beatitudes. Blessed are, are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That there is this uh, pleasure that God has in his people who suffer well. It's not the same as being happy, because it's hard to be happy when you're suffering, right? It's not the same, because happiness is based on circumstance, right? You, you go to a... Um, a really great spot that has like a really nice carnitas burrito so happy you finish the burrito sad no more burrito like for me that's like 
pinnacle. You just always want like one more. Like, I, oh, I want a little one. Maybe I'll get another one. Circumstantial. Too often we think of the, of the big circumstances, the situations in life, and we treat it like that. Like it's something that we have come to get, that we, it made us happy for a moment, and then it's gone. It's like a little piece of, of food that went away. But what James is getting at, and what Paul gets at, and what Jesus gets at, is that we are to have joy in Christ. That we are to be deeply satisfied regardless of our external circumstances, regardless of the situations that we have in our lives. Because our identities are in Christ. He says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, if, you, if you've read the book of Job, you know that some stuff happens to Job because Satan wants to, like, test, test Job, and there's this kind of, like, heavenly conversation with Satan having this discussion with the Lord about, like, oh, look at Job, and, you know, this guy, he's never had a hard day in his life, and so, like, of course he follows you, and the Lord's like, all right, like, if you want to test him, go ahead, you just can't kill him, and so they go through this series of hardship, and the, the whole book of, of Job, then after Job's family, like most of his family is killed off, and like all, his, like all of his riches and wealth goes away, the whole uh, rest of the book, until you kind of get to the end, is this conversation of like his friends trying to be like, well, maybe like this is why it happened to you, and like Job, you know, like maybe it's this, and maybe it's this, and they're having like these conversations, and again and again, like, Job's wife and his friends are like, oh, like, you, you should just, like, leave the Lord. You should just curse him. Like, just be done with it. Like, obviously, he let this happen to you. He was the one who, like, made these things happen to you. And it's kind of drawn out over this long period of time. But Job, he, he doesn't give in. He remains faithful. He does get to a spot towards the end where he starts to complain to the Lord about this. And he's like, oh, you know, like, you, you're, like, not taking care of me. But he, he never abandons his faith. He never, in the midst of all of his hardship, in the midst of all of his anxieties and, and fears and worries, and in the midst of all of the circumstances that he was in, he clings on to God and continues to hope in him. Job's uh, life, his, his trajectory is not one where he just goes through and he never asks any questions to God, like, why, why is this happening he does. You see that throughout the book. He does uh, complain a bit, and he does question, and he does struggle, and sometimes he kind of acts in defiance towards the Lord, but his faith is never snuffed out. He does know that God is doing a great work in some way. And what James says here is, if, if you've read the story, you know. You know what the end is. You see the, the beginning, and you see the end. In Job chapter 42, the very end of the book, Job finally confesses that he's learned his lesson about God's goodness, about God's sovereignty, and that he sees that there is a purpose in all the suffering, all the hardship. 42 verse 5 and 6. 
I had heard of you, Job says. He's speaking to the Lord. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What Job says is, as he's made his way through suffering and through trials, he's like, I, I knew the Lord through hearing of him, through the tales of what God has done. But now, after making it through and being sustained through all of this season of hardship and suffering and worries and fears and difficulties, he says, now I see that God has been faithful to me. I've heard of him being faithful to other people, but now I see him. He has experience with the Lord. And when he sees him, he's like, okay, I'm sorry, like I ever complained. Like I, he repents, he says. It's God's objective from the beginning of Job's life was to give Job an opportunity to know him more fully. To know him more fully. This, this is why, this is what ends up happening. This is in Job's own words. He says, I have only heard of you before. But now he's like, now I've been there. I know. I have the experience that God intended. His knowledge puts him in a different place, a different category. And so James compares this. He says, we've seen the purposes of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James citing Psalm 103. God's not trying to bring hardship to the life of the believer. He's not trying to bring difficulties into the life of the Christian, but is instead showing mercy. Helping us develop our character, helping us develop our deeper knowledge of him. What he's really doing is protecting us through these circumstances. Because you're not given an opportunity to build idols in your life when you are shown that these things fail you. You're not given an opportunity to build your life around other things when they are continually being shown to be weak and God to be strong. And so James here says God is merciful and compassionate. He's working toward our good. As James writes this, he moves through verse 11 quickly. That section that says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfastness. Who re- excuse me, who remain steadfast. When he says there that you've remained, uh, that, that you are considered blessed, that's typically something where we would want to stop and be like, oh, tell me about the rewards. Like, tell me about the things that we get. It's like a natural thing. Like, oh, like I went through all this hardship so I could be blessed. But as we come to it, what James is wanting to emphasize more is God's faithfulness rather than what our reward is, what our blessing is. But, but they become one and the same. God's faithfulness 
his mercy, his mercy, his compassion is a blessing. It is something that changes us. And we see his faithfulness to us in such a way that it leads us to grow in our trust of him. He moves finally into verse 12. And says this, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. He finishes with this exhortation, a practical exhortation to his readers about speech. Of course, this is kind of sitting in this section about being patient and suffering, about dealing with hardship and, and wanting to endure well. And so he says, as you move through these seasons, as you move through these times of difficulty, above all, he's like, if you do anything, don't do this. Taking of vows... It's a, it's a form of speech here, uh, but more serious than, than grumbling. He says, do not swear. He uh, is not speaking of the idea of, like, cussing. That's not what he's getting at here. Like, like when you're upset and you're frustrated, like, he's not saying, like, don't, cr- don't cuss or, you know, don't use profanity. What he's saying here is... We ought not to um, use God's name as a guarantee that we will be faithful. Because our character and God's character, sometimes they don't match up. He does, what he's saying here is not that we shouldn't... Um, anchor our our words and our actions in the Lord, but rather that we should be faithful because of who God is, our identity being in Christ. Now, the Old Testament doesn't prohibit oaths, so this isn't the reason for the prohibition. Uh, you know, the Old Testament actually said, like, if you if you do swear like an oath, like you should keep it, you should you should follow up. But this is more anchored in Jesus's own words, where he says, like, this is foolish, like you shouldn't participate in oaths. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five, he says, "But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, uh, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is." his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you uh, say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. When Jesus says this, what he's wanting to get at here is he's dealing with a situation in which these uh, oaths or, or vows were were put in place for the specific 
purpose of giving the appearance of making a contractual ag an agreement in some sense, but the actual wording of the oath basically was worded in such a way where it gave the person making the oath like an escape, uh, escape hatch to get out, to just be like, oh, I said this in such a way where like I left myself a little loophole. So that way it could be said that I was true to it, but like there was this one thing that like that was the clause that I said in there, the reason so that I could get out of it. And what it's really demonstrating is that the person is being deceitful and they're not being true to their word. This is why Jesus just says like, Quit trying to like make these things like buy this or buy that or to like couch your language in such a way that it makes you not faithful. He's, that's why Jesus just says like, look, just say like yes or no and then be faithful to that. Don't try to, to come and create this oath in such a way uh, to form this appearance of being truthful, but all the while trying to create an escape hatch and trying to get out of it. This that he's getting out here is this I, this integrity in your speech. But as James writes, he continues on to communicate this in a way that would have us avoid oaths for the purpose of being truthful in all circumstances, wholehearted in our pursuit of Christ. We should be truthful, consistent, dependable, so that we don't need oaths. No, yes, or like if we say yes, yes, no, no, is what James gets at, what Jesus gets at. And this, of course, is rooted in God's character. So as we go through seasons of suffering, as we go through hardship, our yes should be yes, our no should be no. We reflect him in seasons of hardship and difficulty and suffering. Numbers chapter 23 Verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God will be faithful to his word. He will do all that he says he will do. When he says that he will return, when we read the words of James, wait, be patient, wait until the coming of the Lord, what James is getting at here is that the Lord will keep his word. He will return. And we also ought to be like him in character and nature, in keeping our word. He says primarily we need to start within the household of faith, within the church. We ought to obey the things that God has called us to do, reflecting his character, admonishing the idol, those people who know what they're supposed to, like we just talked about, those people who know what they're supposed to be doing and they're not doing it. Encouraging those who are discouraged, those who are weak, helping them, being patient with all. Our character, again and again, we have to be wholehearted, reflecting God's character. 
he doesn't leave an excuse for for us to ever say like, well, you know, I had this or had that. What he just says is keep refining and be patient with all. Because your character is then reflected not only to the church, but to the surrounding community. This is why he ends in verse 12 with this word. Calling us to be truthful, not only in word, but in deed. Right? Earlier, we didn't, we didn't get to it here because we're not in this, this uh, book. But he says that we ought to be faithful not only in, in word, but in deed. Our actions have to match our words. And here, he's calling us both to action and also to be faithful in word. And the, the result of being unfaithful in action... He tells us in verse 12 is that it leads to falling under condemnation. That we are shown to be people who are not faithful. That we are not like God in character. That we are not reflecting who he is. Our yes needs to be yes. Our no needs to be no. There's no idea of, or for protecting yourself. Because yourself is dead. You're dead. Only Jesus is alive. And we're hidden in Christ with God. So there's nothing to protect. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And be patient in suffering while we wait. Let that character in your life develop as you look to that future return of Christ, as he's echoed in Titus, as he's echoed in Colossians, and now we look at in James, it is the return of the king that we look to. Letting his work give us identity, letting his return dictate our present behavior, and letting that hope of his return influence the way that we live our lives with joy on a daily basis. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you have been so patient with us. Not only do you call us to be patient with each other, but you have been so patient with us. And so, Lord, we want to um, say thank you. We want to respond Lord, with gratefulness in our hearts, we want to respond in worship. And so, Lord, be, be glorified um, in our lives, Jesus. We love you.